Would you take your Bibles and turn with us, please, to Luke chapter number 2. Luke chapter number 2. You may want to follow along with me as I'll read after we read this passage from Mark chapter 6, one verse of Scripture. I'm interested in the silent years of Christ's life. The silent years of his life will be this morning and perhaps next Sunday. Could possibly be another Sunday beyond. But more than likely this Sunday and one more in the silent years of Christ. As you find verse 40 of Luke 2, would you stand with us please? We'll reverence God's word by standing for the reading of today's text that the message comes from. Luke 2, 40, and we're going to read down through verse 52, though we won't deal with only verse 40 this morning. Luke 2, beginning verse 40. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. And when they had fulfilled the days, as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother knew not of it. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him. And it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said unto them, How is it that you sought me? You knew where you could find me, is what he's saying. He said, Wished ye not that I must be about my father's business? I'm sure I'll say something about this next week. We don't know at what age Jesus came to understand who he was, what his purpose was. We do know he had to grow. I'm going to deal with some of that this morning in his humanity. He had to learn. He who is omniscient robed himself in flesh. And through the natural processes of life, he had to learn and grow. But he does know. It's evident. He does know by the time you get here what his purpose for being in this walk of life is. Verse 49, and he said unto them, how is it that you sought me? Wished ye not that I must be about my father's business? And they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. Was subject unto them. You think about that. He was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. I want to read as well Mark 6 and verse 3 regarding the silent years of Christ, the verses I've just read. And this other verse that I'm about to read is all we have. Out of all these years in Christ's young life, 28 years of his life, this is all we have of him. Verse number 3 of Mark 6 says, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. Thank you for standing. Again, I'm interested in the silent years of Christ today, Jesus the child. Jesus the child. This is the 12th time we've looked into 
the life of Christ, the young life, I might add, of Christ to this point. Uh, there were seven messages regarding the circumstances and events leading us to the birth of Christ and then the adoring of the shepherds. We dealt with the genealogy of Christ. We dealt with Gabriel's announcement of Christ's birth to Mary. We dealt with Joseph, a yielded life for Christ. Uh, we looked at Mary's visit to Elizabeth, the birth itself, the visits in the night by the angel, uh, the angels and the shepherds, and then the purposes of God. I just mused before you that day, all this working in my life, how God was working his purposes out even in the early life of his own darling son. Then there were four messages regarding the, uh, the scenes beyond the nativity. Uh, there were the ceremonial matters we dealt with. We dealt with the encounters at the temple with Simeon and Anna. We dealt with the visit of the Magi and their offering of gifts that they offered of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Our last look, we looked at the pre-written pathways of Christ. It's already foretold that he would come from Egypt, so he had to go there, right? And that he would be raised in Nazareth, he had to come back there. And he did. Today, these silent years, let me give you this in these verses. Next week, we'll probably cover all three of the remaining. But in verse number 40 here, there's Jesus the child. I'll say something more about that in just a moment. Um, in, in, in chapter 2, in verse 41 to 51, we have the scene at the temple of Christ at the age of 12. In verse number 52, it's Jesus as a teen and as a young man. It's summarized, and I'll say something about that in a moment as well. And then Jesus as a carpenter. That's all we know about him, about his life in Mark chapter number 6 and verse number 3. Just very little recorded in Scripture regarding the young life of Christ. I wanted to read this today. Perhaps you'll read it before next Sunday. And wanted to consider all the verses, but we don't have time to consider all the verses today. There's many things we don't know about Christ in his early life, and there's some things we do know, right? We do know of his conduct. We know of his development. We know of his sinlessness. We know of his obedience. We know of many things along that line. We totally reject some of the invented stories about Christ as a little boy, uh, such as there are those that have written that Jesus is a boy um, he would take rocks and throw them into the air and they would turn into doves or something of the sort. He was a bit of a show-off. We totally reject that. As a matter of fact, concerning his miracles, he performed no miracle until, uh, until the wedding uh, at Cana of Galilee when he took the six water pots, told them to fill them with water, and he turned the water into wine. The Bible says in John two eleven, this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested... Forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. That was the beginning of his miracles there. There's, when the Bible is plain about something, that's what we bow to. We bow to the truth of the stated truth that's been put before us. There were no miracles in his early life. He grew like other boys grew and have grown through the ages. Um, as far as what we, we don't know, we, we leave those whimsical, those mystical tales, those invented fairy tales, we leave them in, in, the, in, the, in the books of mysticism. We don't want to visit those. Um, we don't want to look at the Apocrypha and, and, and embrace something our early church fathers 
rejected about Christ. And uh, in order to us, for us to have 66 books in the canon of Scripture that we hold dear as our Bible, we, we have to trust those early church fathers. I have some books at home that, that give us the, the stringent um, uh, tests that were used in order to approve and accept whatever was inspired of God and reject that which wasn't. There's nothing that contradicts in these 66, 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament books. They all go together. God never has contradicted himself. Uh, you will, you have, you will again if you live very long. Same with me, but God never has contradicted himself in his, in his word that's been preserved or anything else. You say, preacher, well, if that be the case, tell me how to understand a certain passage. I may not know and can interpret it for you, but that don't mean it's not God's word and doesn't have an interpretation. As far as what we do not know, um, we, we, if God would have wanted us to know more, he would have told us more. I said recently that the Bible's not all God knows. It's just all he wants us to know. And the Gospels are not all of, of Christ's movements while on the earth. It's just those movements the Spirit of God wanted to preserve in the, in the holy writings and, and so that we could glean and learn thereby. Luke writes to us in verse number 40 as, as, he, as he talks to us about these silent years. What was going on for the first 10 years when they, after, they, after the flight into Egypt and then the flight or the... the the journey out of Egypt back into Nazareth, what were those 10 years like? The next 10 years until we get to the temple scene where Jesus is 12. Well, he gives it to us. Verse number 40, it's all God wants us to know. The Bible says, And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. As I've just said to you, this verse covers 10 years of the life of Christ. From the age of two at the death of Herod to the age of 12, where we find him in the following verses, verse 41 through 51. As a matter of fact, if you'll look at verse number 52, the Bible says, and this, of course, is recorded after the temple scene. Verse number 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Now, that's the last 18 years of his life after the temple scene. Um, just prior to, uh, from the temple scene at age 12 to age number 30, just prior to his uh, public ministry beginning. And so that accounts for 28 years in the life of Christ, often referred to as, uh, often referred to as the um, silent years of Christ. And that's what we're referring to it uh, as this morning. And so this verse that we're preaching from, verse number 40, it gives us a summary, a brief summary of the years, 10 years. Where Jesus grew up in the home of Joseph, who was a carpenter, and Mary. And according to Mark chapter number 6 and verse number, verse number 3, we know that there were other sons and daughters. They were born, uh, if, if, if you'll allow me to be technical with it, Jesus was born unto Mary, born into the home of Joseph and, and Mary, but born unto Mary. But there were other sons and daughters born unto Joseph and Mary. Jesus was conceived and born, birthed supernaturally, but now his brothers and sisters, they were conceived and birthed through natural process. So we know there were other children that was added to the home, which of course tears apart Catholicism at its core. That being the perpetual virginity of Mary, there is no such of a thing. 
She was a virgin when she conceived of the Holy Ghost. She was a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus. But she did not remain a virgin. She and Joseph consummated their marriage. There would be other sons and daughters born into their, their, their homes. As a matter of fact, Mark 6, 3 again says, It's not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us. They were offended at him. As a matter of fact, we believe by the time Mark 6, 3 is recorded, Joseph, the husband of Mary, had already died. There's no mentioning of it. You get to his public ministry and there's, there's no mentioning of Joseph. And we don't know when Jesus had to pick up the mantle as the carpenter in the home and supply his clients with um, whatever was desired, whatever materials they desired for him to, to either carve or, or to craft. The child grew. Luke writes to his audience, Luke's a Greek, you know. Often you hear people rare back and they'll say, well, all the New Testament penmen were, were Jews, but they weren't. Luke's a Greek. We know he pins down the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Luke in the book of Acts. And many scholars present a good argument. I reject it, but many of them believe that he pinned down the book of Hebrews as well. I personally believe Paul to be the penman. But Luke writes his target audience, where Matthew's target audience is the Jews. They're looking for their king, their Messiah, their promised one. He writes and presents Jesus in a kingly fashion. Even in his genealogy, when he starts out, he starts out with a king. He closes with a king. Over 30 times, he mentions the kingdom of heaven. Over five more, he he mentions the kingdom of God. He's the king. He writes to the Jews. Mark writes to the Romans. Romans were very industrious people and accomplished much and believed that if you could mark a man's life, you ought to mark where he got started and mark him every time he accomplished something across life. And if he was worth his salt, he would have accomplished much. He would have been very industrious. So Mark writes and presents Jesus as the perfect servant. He's very ox-like, very calf-like, pressing in the yoke. John writes to the world and presents Jesus as nothing short of God in the flesh. God of very God. But Luke writes to the Greeks. In Greece, we understand to this day, there remains statutes of the perfect man. Sometimes it's the perfect thinker or the perfect phys- physique of a man or a man in the harness of some sort or a man with great accomplishment. Luke says, I've got him for you, fellas. He underlines the humanity of Christ like no other writer. But he would do that. You've heard from this pulpit over the last 10 plus years now about Luke. He writes as a historian. He marks his works. He lays it out in an orderly fashion. We learned that in Luke chapter number 1 where he's trying to disciple Theophilus. And he said, I've written to you in order, Theophilus. And he does that over and again, but he also is a physician. And being a physician, he'll, he'll pay careful attention to some of his wording. Um, as a matter of fact, Paul referred to Luke, his companion, as my beloved physician. There were times it was only Paul and Luke. And that's something the preacher had his own personal physician. But he was his companion. No doubt he would have taken care of him. But he affectionately referred to him as the beloved physician. He had something about him that was 
was agapetas, beloved. It's just something rare, something unusual that God was using in him. It's amazing to me how that, uh, how that the Spirit of God can choose a man to pin down these scriptures and use that man's vocabulary and use that man's personality and, and pin it down, and, and he doesn't contradict any of the other writers. God uses Luke to express the growth in his humanity. I'm talking about the humanity of the Son of God this morning. He writes in this first phrase of verse number 40, he writes of the physical development of Christ. He simply states, and the child grew. He's careful to distinguish the difference in verse 40 and verse number 52, what's going on at different stages in his life. He says he grew in verse number 40. He says he increased in verse number 52. Added to, he flourished, he developed in different areas of his life after this experience in the temple at age 12. He's careful to distinguish the two. From 2 to 12, he grew, the Bible says, and the child grew. This word grew in verse number 40 is a word that's actually, it refers to to the medical world and speaks of physical development, physical growth, which is the normal experience of a child receiving nourishment as a child normally would receive nourishment. He says, just as your children have grown through the years and physically they developed like a child will, so Jesus developed. Joseph witnessed this. Mary witnessed this. Others witnessed this as well. We're told by science that... uh, that at the moment of conception, a little boy, the color of his hair and the color of his eyes, in all likelihood, the very height that he grows to can be pinpointed if you could trace it out in his genetic makeup. I don't know if you can or not. I'm certainly not wise enough to know. I do know that Jesus said that by giving thought, by taking thought, by worrying, by being anxious, you can't add a cubit to your stature. This growth, this development. Although Jesus is God, don't you lose sight of that. Sometimes people, when writing of the humanity of Christ, they lose sight of that. When they preach about it, they lose sight of the fact that Jesus is God. He is 100% God. He is 100% man. He is the God-man. He's the great unlike. There's nobody in all the three worlds like him. He is God-man. He is the son of man. He is the... He is the Son of God. He is God. There's a man seated at the right hand of the Father representing you today, and his name is Jesus Christ. Yet that man is God. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. The physical development of Christ. Though he is God, Luke wants us to know that he growed. He grew. He he has grown in the normal processes of human experience and physical development. He begins his earthly life as, as perfect and sinless, but still he had to grow. Still he had to grow. Listen to what John Butler had to say about it. He said that Christ would condescend to take upon him a human body and that he would endure the slow day-by-day development of the body before he could begin his ministry rebukes every particle of pride and impatience that is found in all of us. He who was so great that he could speak the galaxies into space 
in an instant simply by a word from his mouth. Now, in his incarnation, humbles himself to have a human body and patiently waits for it to develop before he, he can begin his ministry. We want what we want right now, right? Sure we do. Butler's right. As a matter of fact, we want what we want yesterday. This art of waiting. As a matter of fact, we're admonished in Scripture, child of God, over and again to wait. Jesus waited 30 years. We know by age 12, he's already, he's well aware of, he's well aware of who he is and his purpose in this world. And I will say this, and this is in no comparison to Christ our Lord, because there are no comparisons. Part of the scripture we read last week said, um, the Shulamite said about Solomon, said, said he's altogether lovely. And said he's the chiefest among 10,000. Said, put him in a room. Uh, he'll stand head and shoulders above the rest of you. Nobody to compare. You take a Longfellow and a Shakespeare and compare them. Maybe a D.L. Moody and a Charles Spurgeon and draw similarities. Hey, nobody like Jesus. Nobody like him. Yet he's willing to wait 30 years. We want to surrender to preach and get right out in the business, right? And, uh, but the Lord waited 30 years knowing the whole time what he's waiting for. Luke also writes not just of the physical development of Christ as a child, but he also writes uh, of his strengthening inwardly as he grew. Look, if you will, at these first two phrases here in verse number 40. He, he writes, and the child grew, here it comes, and waxed strong in spirit. Now, the first phrase has to do with, uh, with uh, has to do outwardly with Christ's bodily development. The second phrase has to do with his inner strength, his inner development. He waxed strong in spirit, Luke writes. That is, he grew, and as he grew on the outside, becoming stronger as a young man will, as a young child will, as a lad will, so he became strong inwardly as well. He had a body which was genuine. It was a human body. But he had a reasonable soul that was developing as well. That's where your reasoning faculties lie. It's in the soul of a man. It's in the spirit of a man. That's where you make your decisions. That's where you, that's where you roll over your, your conscience thoughts. And Jesus developed. He waxed. He waxed strong in spirit. And there are those, and I won't, I won't say much about it. I could have just come with five, six, seven, eight, ten sheets of paper where people have offered conjecture about Christ as a boy, just whimsical stuff. I can't even think along that line. And then some go on to say that as a child, that somehow Donald as a child, he probably was mischievous and brought trouble into the home or was rebellious at times, perished the thought. He is the perfect child. Don't you ever let your mind go there. If we believe Holy Scripture, and we do, we're Bible believers, we, we reject that utterly. You remember, what, uh, you remember what the Old Testament teaches us in the commandments, how that, a man's, uh, how that a child should honor their father and their mother. And then Paul would pick that up in Ephesians 6, 1 to 3. The Bible says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. I hope every young person listening to me knows that, that, um, 
that the first commandment that you can honor toward your parents is just to honor them. Yes, sir. No, sir. You don't, you don't have to say anything in, in rebut to them. Matter of fact, I'd advise against it. The first commandment with promise in the Bible is given to the children of the church. You know, that given to the children in this world. Honor your father and your mother that, you, that your days may be long, that your years may be long upon the earth. I was messing with Brother Sable and a number of others throughout the morning this morning. And uh, I was asking him about a message he preached. And I'll give you his three thoughts here in a minute. A message he preached, it's been uh, probably 17 years ago, if not 18 years ago now, uh, regarding if I were young out of Ecclesiastes 12.1. I asked him, I said, do you remember your points of emphasis? I said, I, I remember some of, the, some of the ways you illustrated out of your own life. And, and he said, yeah, I, th- I think so. And so he gave them to me. And I'll give them to you here in just a moment. It's a really good thought to chew on as anything with Brother Sable is. But I remember in that message, he talked about growing up on a dairy farm. And he said, we weren't allowed to play ball. We had to work. And he said, on the playground at recess, I had grown up knowing that I could play with the other boys, could do at least what they could do, and many times I could outdo what they could do. And he said, I wanted my opportunity to play football on the football field in front of everybody else too. But he said, me and my brother couldn't play because we had to work on the farm. But he said, I thought, he said, this was before days where you'd stay after school to practice. You would take a period or two during, um, during, um, during, during school and, and said they, that the football players would get to go practice on the field. He said, and I suited up that first day. He said, I forged my mom and dad's name so that I could play. I had permission to play. And he said, I broke my arm the first day. And he said getting found out was not the worst thing about it. He, was, he said the worst thing about it for me was knowing that I had disobeyed my daddy and I knew it would bring great disappointment to his heart. He said, I didn't say anything to anybody. He said, took my broke arm home. He said, daddy worked all day. We went to school during the day and we all come home and worked all evening into the night. He said, that was life on the dairy farm. And he said, my daddy saw me, said we were milking the cows, and said my daddy saw that I wasn't able to accomplish what I'd normally be able to accomplish as a young teenage boy. And it said he walked over, and he said, Don, what's, what's the matter? And he said, I burst forth in tears. And he said, I held that arm out. And he said, Daddy, he said, uh, he said, I broke my arm today. He said, well, son, let's get you to the doctor. And he said, he said, no, Daddy, that's not all of it. He said, you told me I couldn't play football, and I went out and played today. And he said, Daddy, he said, I've, I've disappointed you. And he said, I know I deserve to be punished, but he said, I want you to know I'm sorry. And I want to tell you, if a boy can do that, what of Christ? Don't ever let your mind go where these liberal writers go. Jesus never had to apologize. He never had to say, I disobeyed today. He never had to say, I went back on my word. He never had to say, I told a white lie. He never had to say any of that. Matter of fact, speaking of, of Brother Sable, I, I asked him, as I have asked him every son, I used to ask Dr. Way all those questions, and then Brother Sable come along, then he got the brunt of it all. I remember sitting in his old motor home, uh, one morning, he was with us in revival some years ago, and I said, "Let me ask you something." I said, "We're drinking coffee, just sitting and talking." I was picking his brain. 
I said, I said, where are you? Where you're so disciplined in the scriptures, you uncover so much truth. I said, what do you attribute that to? And he said, growing up on that dairy farm. He said, my daddy believed that an idle mind was a devil's workshop. And he said, if we didn't have anything else to do, my daddy made me and my brother dig up a stump with an axe and a pickaxe and a shovel. And he said, you didn't just loafer on a dairy farm. He said, there's always something to do. And he said, if I could attribute my life today and the fruit of it to anything, he said, it was in my raising. He said, I was taught, taught to, to grow up a disciplined young man. He said, there were no cartoons for us. Some of y'all may not know what that is. Lucy was watching uh, over the Thanksgiving holidays. She sat in the house watching something. One of them had hair up to here. And, uh, his buddy beside him, a cartoon. The other one looked like a hippie. I said, what are you doing watching them hippies? She said, Pop Pop said, they're not hippies. I said, they're hippies. She said, I guess they are, Pop Pop. said, one of them's tall hair. Well, there wasn't any tall hair hippies in the cartoons back in Brother Sable's day. Do you know that phrase, waxed strong in spirit? Do you know what that means? Do you know that's what that means? It means to be taught young, and every child won't take the lesson. It has to learn it the hard way. It takes discipline to get through this life. Are y'all listening to me this morning or just faking it with me? I'm telling you, it takes discipline. And that idea of waxing strong in spirit means to be resolute. It means to be strong. It means to, to have your mind made up, be able to make a decision. It means to understand why you're here and, and to have a determination to accomplish your purposes while you are here. He had to wax strong in spirit. Most writers that you'll read after that have studied his life believe that he traveled on foot, just that we know of in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that he traveled about some 2,500 miles on foot in three years. And while he's traveling on foot, he's constantly preaching, he's constantly teaching, He's got people constantly pushing on him and pulling on him and wanting an audience with him. He's got children trying to jump on his uh, knee and approach him. He's healing. He's, uh, he's uh, saving. He's teaching. He's, he's constantly doing. As a matter of fact, when he comes forth, and we'll see this shortly in a few weeks, when he comes forth for his baptism, the first thing he, he does is being led of the Spirit. He's going to be led up into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. He'll fast 40 days and 40 nights. I've only known of a handful of men that had the testimony. They could fast 40 days and 40 nights. But he did it. And while he's done it, while he did it, he was so resolute that the devil waged war on him every day. And every night, waxed strong in spirit. On top of all that, he knew his rejection was soon to come. He had a heart for Judas, but he knew his betrayal was soon to come. He knew the scourging and the mock trials. He knew they were all coming. He knew his mother would watch it all together. She's been pondering it, piecing it in her mind the whole time. Now she's seen it come to pass. He knew that was before him. He knew all of it was before him. Strength of the soul. Do you have that today? You young people don't ever discount hardship in your home. We don't like hardship. The flesh don't like hardship. But hardship's good for us. Do you know that? Do you know sometimes we get bad news about somebody? Maybe the best news we got all week. 
Because God works in those adverse situations to make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes you hear people pray for patience. Pray for it all you want to. But I'm one of those believers that believes you don't have to ask for it. If you ask for it, get ready for it. Don't complain when it shows up. You're going to get some of that whether you want it or not as a child of God. If you really belong to him, he puts you through the second grade. You'll pass the test before you make a third grader. Does that make sense to you? Resolute. Listen to the old saintly John Gill writing about this and. My next thought or two, I'll I'll be brief with it. Listen to the old saintly John Gill. He said, the faculties of Christ were far from being weak. They were exceeding strong and appeared stronger and stronger every day. His understanding was clear, his judgment solid, and his memory strong and retentive. His will and the desires of it were to that which is good, and his affections cleaved unto it. By the way, Brother Sable's message He said, if I were young, that was the title. He said, if I were young, I'd want to live so that I'd have nothing to hide, nothing to prove, and nothing to lose. That's a pretty good youth message. Would you agree? Luke writes, of the physical development of Christ as a child, verse number 40, the first phrase. The second phrase, the strengthening of Christ in the inner man, in the inner person as he grew, verse number 40. And then Jesus grew in wisdom, the Bible says in verse number 40. The Bible says, and the child grew and waxed strong in spirit. Here it is, filled with wisdom. The Greek verb tense literally reads like this, and the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, becoming filled with wisdom. Across time. People in studying the Bible want to jump right over in where Brother Jay's at on Sunday, and been on Sunday for a long time. A new believer got no business there yet. Read the Gospel of John. Read 1 John. Get your feet under you. Back up and start out in Genesis. It's there in the beginning for a reason. If Paul is the penman of Hebrews in chapter number 6, he said, you don't have to go back. It's impossible for you to go back and crucify him again. That's impossible. He said, you've got to move on past the first principles. Don't ask another profession of faith out of somebody that's made it. Teach them how to repent and move on. He said he grew in wisdom. Now, Jesus grew as a child, right? We, we've witnessed his birth from infancy. Now, verse number 41 of this chapter takes us up to the age of 12. Down through 51, and then verse number 52 takes us all the way from age 12 to age 30. So he grew in age. He grew in stature. He was an infant. We need a blessing watching Warren walk in here today as big a man as he is with that little, little bitty boy gently holding his son. It's hard to imagine. Can you imagine there's a day when Greg and Shelley carried him just like he's carrying that little boy right there? So it is with Christ. He grew intellectually. He says, filled with wisdom. Again, this morning, I'm speaking to his humanity. Let me give you this in a hurry for time's sake. But Jesus grew. How did he grow intellectually? How how does a person do that? Number one, he would grow through instruction. I hope hope this doesn't run right by us this morning. He would grow through instruction. It was incumbent upon Joseph from age 3 to 12 to teach Jesus 
all the ordinances, the ancestral heritage, the scriptural principles, it was incumbent. As a matter of fact, he would go to the school of the book like other little boys would go, and he would learn those first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And by the time he's 12 and 13, he probably could have quoted it. Most Jewish boys could. It was so rehearsed. But instruction, and I posed this when dealing with Joseph back uh, maybe a couple of months back. Can you imagine Joseph teaching Jesus about Daniel's three friends being thrown into the fiery furnace that was heated up, the Bible says, one, seven times hotter than it had been heated up before? Can you imagine? Now, if Jesus, you guys going to have to, I try my best to be a gentleman and kind about everything, but I'm probably going to throw a little shot right here. But you can take it, surely to God, out of ten and a half years, you can take one little old shot. Surely we're tough enough to do that. But while he's telling that story, you know, if he'd been a typical teenager today, you know what he would have said? He would have said, oh, I know all about it. I was the first one in the fire that day. You can save yourself a little time. You know what I'm convinced he did? When Joseph taught him, he was quiet and he listened. We've lost something, this old generation that's left us. Most of them about left us. They knew what it was to grow up honest. A man's word was his bond. If he told you something on Monday, it'd be that way on Friday. If he talked to you, he didn't stab you in the back when you weren't around. There's a generation that grew up in this country that dug it out of the ground to survive and trusted God for the rest. He would have learned. He would have, he would have learned through instruction. Number two, through questions. Even here in the temple, saying Luke 2.46, And it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. He, he learned, number three, through observation. Had to. A lot of his teaching is through parables in the Gospels, right? He observed his surroundings. He applied himself. He had to be very observant. Jesus grew physically, but Luke won't just know he grew intellectually. Let me give you one more quote. I promise you I'm almost done. One writer wrote this about him growing intellectually. Although Jesus was God in human flesh, he could have easily, um, could easily bypass all uh, normal growth processes, yet he willingly subjected himself to a human body and to common life experiences. He did not simply appear in this world as an infant, with an adult mind, nor did he come physically as a grown man. Jesus, the very word of God, had to learn to speak just as each of us has had to do. His wisdom and knowledge came to him by degrees, although greatly accelerated because of his sinlessness, physical, intellectual, emotional, social, or spiritual was absolutely flawless because of his sinless perfection. This one difference makes it impossible for us to really penetrate the mystery of his gradual development from a child into the adult we read about on the gospel pages. But he did do it. Lastly, you'll notice the last phrase of verse number 40. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. I've asked others over the last two weeks, what, what, do, you see, what, what, what do you see in that phrase? And we're all pretty well bumfuzzled. The grace of God was, in other words, the hand of God was upon him. The presence of God was upon him. God was upon him. God was about it. The grace of God was upon him. 
I'm going to tell you, that ought to be what we seek after every day of our lives is the good favor of God. Um, I've I, I thought about this business of growth. Do y'all remember days when, when people lived in little shotgun houses? I, I can remember. I, I, I have been in a house or two other than Pine Ridge that had dirt floors. I've never lived in one, but I've been in, in one or two in my young life. And, and I can remember, some of you will, this is a jar of memory. Some of you can remember where if there were four girls or four boys or a boy and a girl in the house, probably on the kitchen wall, there were little marks of Billy. Donald, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And there were little marks of Susie. Every year on January 1, what the daddy and mama would do is stand, stand the little boy up, and, and on January 1st, they'd put a mark. They'd take a ruler, and then they'd put a mark. And what they were doing was they were reflecting over the growth, the stages of growth in that child's life. Luke is marking out those stages of growth. We were in Hebrews in our Bible reading this morning. We were, we're in Hebrews. We were in Hebrews chapter number 4. And after we have our scripture reading, let me tell you why we do that. If we don't, we're going there and run dogs and buy hunting rifles and, and buy us a, a new Glock 43. or You understand what I'm saying? But we can go in there and we can read the scripture. We get all that other stuff off our mind. Jay, am I right? Consistently, we've done that through the years. We go to reading the scripture and we get all this other stuff out of the mind, off our mind. We read the scripture, we thank God for the scriptures, and we take a prayer request, and then we thank God for something. And then we go to prayer. We got through praying this morning, and Brother Jeff spoke up, and he said, uh, that was before we prayed. He said, I'll tell you what I want to thank the Lord for this morning. He said, I want to thank the Lord for the fact that, that our Lord can be touched, and he understands, and he knows what we feel, and we can take our needs to him. Hunter was right behind him, and he said, I want to thank him for the same thing. He said, not only can I take my needs to the Lord, he said, but Macy can do that. He knows the temperaments found in childhood. He knows the temperaments found in adolescence. He knows as a young man, then as a grown man, it ought to mean something to you, that even your youngins can take their needs Nobody else understands. Those who know Christ in the free pardon of sin, we can take our needs to the blessed Lamb of God, and He understands. Let's stand. Would you stand with us, please? Miss Angie comes. If there's a need in your life, would you come?